Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus. From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Spider-Man-Sp
and I was I was hooked from there. And from that point on, like I really went out of my way um, to find um, more content and stuff. So uh, I've I've kind of I'm a, I'm a word slut. So uh, I love a good turn of phrase, and Shakespeare is amazing at that. So um, I, I've been hooked for a long time. Do you remember the first play you ever saw performed? Oh. It was it was probably Midsummer Night's Dream. I think it was uh, in I was pretty sure it was in high school, and I'm pretty sure that that's what it was that we saw. Nice. My first play that was performed, they didn't perform Shakespeare in my high school, unfortunately. But I didn't see my first play in person until 1999. I had seen productions, I'd seen movies, but it was the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, which is a beautiful setting, really beautiful. It's outdoors. The um, Apparently the Clintons attend that every year, but I've never encountered them there. And um, it was a production of Titus Andronicus, which I understand is one of Shakespeare's lesser rated works, but I really enjoyed that production. And I was going to say, if I recall correctly, that's one of your favorites. I think it's underrated, but I also understand why some people wouldn't like it as much. If I had to pick a favorite, it it would have to be either Othello or Macbeth. Depends on the day. Well, you know, at least you're flexible. Yes, at least I'm flexible. And, Greg, your love affair with the Bard, which everyone in geekdom seems to be aware of. <laughs> Tell us about that. Uh, well, you know, it was slow in coming. Uh, I mean, I think the first Shakespeare play I saw was Macbeth in sixth grade. Another sixth grade class performed it. And... Um, I remember watching it, and I remember tiny bits of it, but mostly I'm not sure I understood what was going on. Um, and then in junior high and high school, we read some Shakespeare in school, and um, I, I won't say that it really uh, grabbed me all that much uh, until probably my uh, junior or senior year of high school, but by the time I got to college, I was pretty into it. And by the time, you know, when I left college, I moved to New York and saw tons of Shakespeare there. And then even when I moved back to California, um, I I just hunted Shakespeare down wherever. I had a small, if rotating group of friends who uh, would come with me and we'd go down to San Diego to see Shakespeare. We'd go to Orange County to see Shakespeare. We'd see Shakespeare wherever we could. This was before I had kids, obviously. Um, went to the Utah Shakespearean Festival, went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which I've gone to every year except this year. Uh, we went, even went two years ago during a huge fire that was in the neighborhood that spread ash and smoke all over the town of Ashland. We went anyway, um, but COVID beat us and we didn't go this year, but, uh, you know, and I introduced my kids to Shakespeare really young. In fact, it could have gotten really badly. We went to, uh, had this notion, we went to see Midsummer Night's Dream, which I thought would be a good show for little kids. They were like, uh, I want to say like five and three. Um, and uh, it was outdoors. So I thought, well, worst case scenario, if they start to lose it, I can just, you know, walk away without disturbing people too much. Um, in hindsight, it was a ridiculously risky thing to do because I could have, Shakespeare could have gone south for them permanently there, right there. And then. But in fact, 
this particular production played to the kids in the audience. My kids were the youngest kids in the audience, but there were other kids there. And the, the actor who played Puck in particular came out into the audience and really engaged the kids. And my kids just loved it. And so they've been Shakespeare fans since they were really tiny. Um, and that's been great because that's allowed us to go see a lot of stuff together. Uh, all this is after Gargoyles when I put uh, a lot of Shakespeare into that show, as you hinted at earlier. Um, and, uh, you know, I try to do it whenever I can because I'm, uh, you know, a huge Shakespeare fanboy. Um, the way some people are Spider-Man fanboys, which I am too, but I'm probably more of a Shakespeare fanboy even than a Spider-Man fanboy. That is a very one, Jen. I've seen I've seen one or two plays with 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 Greg. I haven't That's had true. I haven't had the privilege yet, but maybe someday. I have another Shakespeare memory, which is actually directly tied to you, Greg. I missed the first gathering, nineteen ninety seven, and I remember, in I think it was summer of two thousand, he posted in Station Eight t talking about Keith David being in a production of um, Shakespeare in the Park in A Winter's Tale. He was playing the king, and I was lucky enough to get tickets. I went. It was a magnificent performance. That was my first time ever seeing Keith in person. And afterwards, I was lucky enough that I was exiting as he was coming out, so I got to bump into him. I told him I loved him in the show, and then I brought up Gargoyles, and he was really happy to hear someone bring that up. And then that up, that was really cool. And then a year later, at the 2001 gathering in Burbank, there was a uh, dealer selling all sorts of swords. I got to watch Keith in person just pick up these swords and start reciting Othello. <laughs> I love Keith. <laughs> Keith is terrific, and he was on. And this is semi on topic. He was on the show in episode one. <laughs> Wait, didn't he leave the show to do Shakespeare in the Park? I believe he did. <laughs> I think he did. It all comes full circle. <laughs> but I can't remember he was always going off to Broadway to do Seven Guitars or Shakespeare or something. So yeah, as I recall, yeah, I remember he was with. I think I remember now he he left to, to go do... Uh, he, he did the first episode of Spectacular Spider-Man, and then he was unavailable because he was playing Oberon on in Shakespeare in the Park. For yeah, that's what it was. Oberon. And uh, <laughs> speaking of Oberon in the Midsummer Night's stream, we should probably begin transitioning over to Spectacular Radio, Spectacular Spider-Man. And I just have to say, I love the way you integrated the play into this episode. It all felt so natural. It never felt forced. I have a copy of this script. I've gone, I bought it at Convergence, and I've gone over it with a fine-tooth comb, and it's just, I'm still in awe at how seamless it was. I mean, what was the process of doing that like for you? Uh, well, I mean, we have this whole notion, or I have this whole notion of, of doing um, a school play. You know, it was a magnet school, and it was a science magic magnet but also a poli-sci magnet and a theater magnet. And so we wanted to do a play because uh, for three of our characters, uh, Mary Jane and Liz and Lori, they were attending the school because it was a theater magnet. So we felt we needed to go there. And um, as we discussed earlier, we did um, auditions um, where we avoided Midsummer Night's Dream uh, we had them audition various Shakespeare monologues, but not from Midsummer, so that that could be reserved for this episode. 
And then we did a rehearsal scene from Midsummer, and now we were doing um, the play, and it, and it just worked out. You know, I went through the play with a fine-tooth comb and um, looking for points of contact between our plot line, our characters, and, and the play, and there were so many that I couldn't even use all of them, hmm. all the ones I found. Um, but, I mean, there was stuff that, you know, is visually obvious in the show. There's a character called Cobweb, so we figured that um, in uh, Sinjin Devereaux's uh, production, he would choose to make the play reach a modern audience by dressing up Cobweb as Spider-Man and dressing up Robin Goodfellow, Hobgoblin, as uh, that is Puck as a uh, green goblin and, and create that connection there with the modern world. So we were able to make those connections between uh, visually with Spider-Man and green goblin. And then um, there's just all these lines of dialogue that just fit with what we were doing right down to the notion that there's a point where Titania talked about an ox we had a character named Ox in the episode. So it was pretty easy going, surprisingly. I didn't know if it would be easy. And I, I have a vague memory of having a conversation with Nicole Dubuque about whether or not I should use Midsummer because I thought, ah, it might feel artificial. Or, and it also is, you know, one of the most overdone Shakespeare plays, to be honest, uh, as much as I love it. Um, and I thought, well, this might be, uh, might not want to do it. But ultimately, when push came to shove, just the notion of having, um, being able to do the cobweb and green goblin thing, and also the notion of having Flash Thompson um, with the head of an ass was too uh, <laughs> of their bit. Um, you know, Kenny is Oberon. Uh, Shoshana Titania um, using the Hermia and, and uh, Helena uh, stuff for uh, Liz and, and Mary Jane. Um, it all seemed to work out uh, as if it was supposed to. So we just, we did it. And then, you know, you throw in the idea of having Green Goblin uh, speak most of his lines in in rhyme and meter uh, until he gets sick of it at the end um, <laughs> uh, was also fun and allowed for that connection and even allowed us to overlap some dialogue between what was going on in the quote-unquote real world at the prison and uh, in the play between uh, Hobie who was playing Puck and and Green Goblin. And it was also fun because we had not let Hobie speak for like a dozen episodes or something like that. Um, every time Hobie was about to speak, someone would interrupt and he'd never get a word in, um, which was this sort of funny running gag. And what I found like the great topper to is when Hobie finally speaks, he's actually speaking Shakespeare. He's not, you know, he's, um, we, we go from, we went from sort of, jump from zero to 100 with him uh, in an instant. Even early in the episode, Hobie's about to speak and he gets interrupted. 
So you don't actually hear Hobie speak until he's in the play itself. And then he, you see what a talented, eloquent guy he is as he uh, performs the character of Puck. And I love that moment. Oh, speaking of overdone Shakespeare plays, I'm sorry, but the Midsummer Night's Dream has nothing on Romeo and Juliet in I that regard. Should, I knew that was the first one that came to my mind when he said overdone. <laughs> uh, let's be my honest. Least, my least favorite and most seen. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? I mean, I've seen some really good productions of that one, but it's not my favorite. <laughs> but uh, when I was in high school, I hated it. I hated it. And my girlfriend at the time and I used to argue about who was stupider, Romeo and Juliet. I was convinced, I was convinced Romeo was the biggest idiot on the planet. And she was convinced it was Juliet. Then the older I've gotten, the more sympathy I have for those characters. Um, and uh, I like it a lot more now than I did when I was Romeo and Juliet's age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess. But it's uh, I still like it. It's just not one of my favorites. There's another, and I, well, before we move on to that, I just have to say the moment Green Goblin said, Lord, what fools these mortals be, I, I was in love with this episode. I feel like <laughs> I've waited my whole life to hear that, especially the way Steve Blum performed it without knowing that's what I needed in my life. <laughs> I, I'm a huge Shakespeare fan. I'm a huge Spider-Man fan. I'm a huge Green Goblin fan. And for many years prior to this show coming out, I was a huge Steve Bloom fan. So it was a perfect storm <laughs> of awesome in that moment. It's I'm right there with you. <laughs> and um, I suppose we should, we should, this is something we should talk about. I personally loved this reveal. It made sense to me. But when I first saw saw it, when the moment... Walter Hardy was revealed as the killer of Uncle Ben. There was a portion of me that said, oh, the internet is going to flip out. Thankfully, it didn't. But the time I was flashing back to the Joker being revealed as the killer of the Waynes in the 1989 Batman movie, or even Sandman being the real killer of Uncle Ben in the original, in, no, in Spider-Man 3, which, um... But I always felt the most important part of that was not the identity of who pulled the trigger on Uncle Ben, but the fact that Peter could have stopped it and he didn't. But what was? But there are some people out there who prefer, like with Bat, the killer Batman's parents. I've seen people who don't like the idea of Joe Show that they prefer the killer to be anonymous, just like a representation of crime itself. So, what led to you deciding that you wanted to elevate the burglar to a named character like that? Uh, you know, there's a cascade of things, probably. I mean, for one, I, I've i always liked Joe Chill as the killer of the Waynes. Um, so I don't mind that at some point he's identified. Um, it just feels like, you know, with Batman in particular being the world's greatest detective, the notion that um, – the one crime he couldn't solve is that one. At some point, that just becomes, really? You know, really? You can't solve that one? What have you been working on since you were 12 or 10 or whatever? Um, so I didn't mind the Joe Chill thing back in the day. I didn't actually mind uh, Joker as, uh, or Jack Napier or whatever you want to call him as the in the movie, it worked for that movie, I thought. Uh, I have other issues with the original Batman movie, but that one wasn't one of them. And I sort of liked the idea, you created me. Yeah, well, you created me first. Um, <laughs> that sort of worked for me, at least in the context of that film. 
Um, I have more trouble, more issues with Sandman turning out to be the real killer because, again, the problem, it actually takes some of the load off here. And what we did here uh, in Spectacular was, I I, want to think, is is not change the fundamental dynamic, which is that a guy ran past Peter who had stolen some money. Peter could have stopped him. Peter didn't give a damn let the guy go, and that hurt him in a way that's so fundamental and so fundamental to the character and the nature of responsibility. So we wanted to play into that, not play against that. And then you have the whole notion of there was this burglar. And then if you read the old Lee Ditko comics, there was this cat burglar. And then you read later and you find out that... Um, Black Cat's father, Alicia Hardy's father, was Walter Hardy, who was a famous cat burglar. And so at some point, I just conflated all these things, as I, done, as I did on Spectacular, you know, quite a few times, conflating ideas, uh, you know, Betty Brandt's gambling addiction brother with uh, Liz Allen's uh half-brother being Molten Man, and it's the idea of saying, well, you know, when you're building a Spider-Man legacy one issue at a time across, you know, at this point, 60 years nearly, and you've got all these different writers and all these different editors and all these different artists, it's going to get messy. It, It can't not get messy, but if you're looking at it with the virtue of hindsight and saying, well, if I knew all this stuff was going to happen in advance, what can I do to consolidate, to make this world more cohesive, more coherent? And this seemed perfect because, um, you know, Black Cat had been flirting with Spidey for a few episodes. Let's give them a reason now to really be at odds with each other and do it in such a way that it doesn't uh, change the basic dynamic of Spidey's origin. So when you see Walter Hardy and Felicia not aware of exactly, since she doesn't know that Spidey's Peter Parker, um, of what bug Spidey has up his ass over her dad. Um, but the dad knows, right? Um, and she's like, uh, you know, just look the other way. And he's, then Peter's like, do you know what happened the last time I looked the other way? Huh. You know, it, it just becomes, yeah, this, this huge internal fury for Peter where he's making it clear he is not letting this guy go. They've got to run for their lives. He gets that. But in the end, he is not letting this guy go. And Walter, in the end, doesn't want to be let go. And so Peter gains a certain modicum of respect, not forgiveness, by the way, but respect for the guy who's willing to take his punishment as opposed to most of the villains that Peter faces who, you know, are constantly coming back at him and blaming him for shit that they did. Um, And, but of course, the flip side is, is during the episode, Peter is furious after the episode, it's Kat who's furious because she does not understand the backstory here. 
no one's going to tell her. And all she knows is that somehow or other, Peter convinced her dad to work against his own best interests and got him to thwart his own jailbreak. And she's never going to forgive him for that. Um, Because obviously she's not going to get another opportunity, certainly not the way she did before to break in there. And, And plus, if he's determined to stay put, how does that help her chances of getting him out? It becomes something that had we had season three into the future would have set the two of them in odds in, I think, a pretty realistic way um, that really would have changed the tenor of their relationship going forward. I think that would have been a good thing because there have been a lot of accusations that the Spider-Man black cat dynamic is often too Batman and Catwoman. Which, oh, by the way, nice uh, nod to that with her alias of Selena Drew. <laughs> it does yeah. say that on her ID, doesn't it? Yeah, that's also, <laughs> which I believe is also a reference to Spider-Woman Jessica Drew. Uh, yeah, it was. Right. It was just, I don't know, throwing, throwing stuff at, you know, at the wall, uh, throwing in a little Easter egg here or there. Um, to me, it's actually a little messy because it, it's like, all right, Spider Woman and Catwoman. What is the connections between those two characters? <laughs> it was just like uh, throwing this name from here and that name from there. That would be fun. <laughs> and and I not. I feel like there had to be something cleverer. Um, obviously, we couldn't do Selena Kyle, and I didn't want to do Jessica Drew, but uh, it feels like they're. I mean, they're fun little Easter eggs, but I felt like in. Hindsight, there must have been a, a more, and not that I've come up with it since or tried even, but uh, there had to have been some clever alias I could have put there than grabbing one name from one source and one name from another. But fans seemed to like it all right, so I guess we'll live with that. Yeah. And my co host has finally arrived. Sorry about that. I'm going to bring Zach in right now. I guess he's having technical difficulties. Hey. Hey, finally, welcome to the show, Zach. <laughs> Well, I was having problems with Skype. Yeah, we had trouble with Skype before we be- at the beginning of the show, also, especially with MP3 Skype recorder. But we're but the show must go on. We're into it now. We already discussed uh, Walter Hardy. We discussed Shakespeare, and um, I was about and to ask- I missed out on on the on the Walter Hardy and Shakespeare. Ah, that's that's no fun. Well, I'm, I'm about to ask Jen a question, and you can fire one off. Jen, you um, did post-production on the first season. We didn't really have you on much for discussion on season two. What changed? Because you were you assisted with pre-production throughout the second season, I believe. I did. Um, uh, and, I, and I did help with post, too. But um, what changed? I, there was just stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we have stuff, and we'll pay you to do it. Okay, I'll do that. So, um, but this, I, I think this is the last episode that I, I, uh, I found an error on like right at the last minute. They were at the sound, they were mixing it, the sound mix. And we were having a, a party, uh, where a bunch, a bunch of us showed up and a little cake and everything. Cause it was the end of the show. And, uh, we went in and we were watching the mix and the part where where they're all like get him, and then the one 
odd homunculus says pistachio. Everyone said pistachio. All their mouths moved. And oh, <laughs> I was no. like, was that supposed to happen? <laughs> and I remember Greg rubbing his face like he does. <laughs> We've all seen Greg rub his face. I'm sure he's still rubbing his face. <laughs> and uh, squash the impulse just now. <laughs> <laughs> that was the very last uh, uh, edit I called. <laughs> nice. Well, well, thankfully you were there. It sounds like they might not have caught that, and it would have been an embarrassing animation error. But And you also have a fun story. Pistachio. <laughs> pistachio. Yeah. So I'll, um, I'll forever now when I'm watching that, I'll be like, pistachio. Oh, yeah, I know, I know what that's about. <laughs> nice. I mean, there is also uh, a fun moment in this episode. And Greg, thank you for this one. I think Rhino is the only person on Earth who could refer to Ox as Pipsqueak. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Zach, um, you have any questions you want to fire off about this episode? Yeah, so um, what was the rationale behind... uh, I'm interested in the prison aspect, because I am a recovering uh, prison guard. I'm no longer a prison guard, but I was at one time. And so... was it just because you wanted to wanted to debut the vault in the uh, in the show, or was there like any? What was the rationale behind, you know, doing this an entire episode highlighting this prison? Well, I mean, there's an issue of Spider-Man. I, I, it's been so long now. I'm trying to remember. I feel like it was uh, uh, Ramita, mm-hmm. not Oli, but there was an issue of Spider-Man where Spidey's in prison and and all those guys he put away are in there with him and he's trapped in there. And that idea is just really appealing to us. Um, the idea of opening night, you know, for the vault coinciding with opening night for the play appealed. Um, the idea of the Green Goblin, because as we later reveal, he's hit, uh, Norman Osborn, mm-hmm. could hack the prison. Um, uh, because build the damn thing um, and thus that everybody lose against Spider-Man was great and then the idea of Black Cat actually breaking into the prison it just all came together it all fit and gave mm-hmm. a chance to resist a bunch of our bad guys um, you know behind bars uh, largely without their gear with the obvious exception of uh Mysterio, Mysterio, because Mysterio was, wasn't really Mysterio. He was a robot. Um, <laughs> right. Rhino, Rhino and Molten Man. Rhino and Molten Man being there, you know, having their powers being more or less inherent, as long as Green Goblin is there to show Molten Man back on. Um, and all that stuff just seemed like a good fit. Also a good reason why Peter can't make it to the play because he's literally locked up. Um, <laughs> that makes, yeah. And it also allowed us to do a little bit of misdirection at the head of the episode, which is, you know, Spidey's thrown into a jail cell. We don't initially reveal he's there to test the thing. Um, so you have this moment where you're like, oh, my God, Spidey's been arrested and thrown in, in jail. Um, then you get to see that Spidey's pretty clever 
um, how's he ever going to bust out of this place? Well, he does it with a combination of, you know, trickery because Spider-Man is a trickster hero in the vein of a Nazi and that kind of thing. Um, just as Goblin's a trickster villain. And then, you know, the play has Puck the trickster in it. So that all seemed to fit. Um, but you've got Spidey using both his science brain, but also just a little clever trickery to get the guards um, to come in and, and in essence, let him out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all would have gone well, except for the fact that uh, Goblin was there hacking the prison. Was the situation with Harry, was that done early on in the script or was it, did somebody say, Hey, like Jennifer, maybe um, we can't have Harry showing up because obviously we've already established that Harry is the red herring or was that very deliberate knowing where you guys were going to go just a couple episodes? Uh, In one episode. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We were going, I mean, it, um, you know, sometimes mistakes happen and get caught by other people, but sometimes actually, no things myself. <laughs> <laughs> when he comes to writing, so he's, no, he's not going to mess it up. There. We knew Harry couldn't be there, uh, and we knew that would, you know, uh, even when we cast him as as uh, Puck uh, a few episodes back, we knew he wouldn't be able to be there. But that would just create more suspicion. In other words, we want the audience to think if Green Goblin's back, Harry's back as the goblin and so obviously if he's over at the prison he can't be there at the play and and that played in with hobie taking over the role which was a great payoff to that running gag and so it was all somewhat elegantly put together i think it's actually not so elegant when you get to 26 and you find out he was abducted and held and what um but i would up through 25, it feels very elegant. Um, I, I thought it was... And then 20, I thought 26 it was, is... Go on. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was quite elegant. We'll discuss that more when we get to Final Curtain. But um, <clears throat> but I actually thought that was also Norman hedging his bets, because what if Spider-Man survives? He thinks that Harry is the guy in the mask, and if he finds out that Harry was on stage that night, that's going to ring all sorts of, that's gonna set off a spider sense so to speak but i have to say one thing poor harry we know why he wasn't there we know why his dad wasn't there but why did mom send the butler <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't yeah, show up I herself mean, harry, <laughs> harry and are not big on the parenting skills I mean, <laughs> really i mean i love I love the scene with Houseman. I just love it. <laughs> Houseman is always so funny. Uh, you know, Jeff Bennett can read the most deadpan line and dry. just knock you out. So dry. Okay. Listen, you gave you gave the butler of the Osbournes more personality in this series than he had the entire Raimi film, so props to y'all for that. <laughs> the night your father died. died I cleaned his wounds. AKA Exposition City. <laughs> I still I still uh, suspect that Butler was sending Harry off to die so he could inherit the entire Osborne for, fortune, but that's just my theory. <laughs> that's my headcanon too. I think we've talked about that in the past. So but 
No, I uh, I have to say, and I, I may be retreading because I had computer problems and Skype decided let's update right before an episode. Um, I loved the the contrast between the prison and and the play. Obviously, y'all talked a little bit about Shakespeare, but was there just uh, was this always in your was this particular play Midsummer Night's Dream always in your head when you guys were, were developing it was or was there other Shakespeare plays that might have played a role? Uh, we kind of covered this. I mean, uh, I had a conversation with the cold Dubuque early on, and um, this one seemed the most obvious because of Cobweb and because of Puck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just because it was obvious, I, I had a certain resistance to it. Um, but ultimately, uh, we just decided to go for it. And I'm glad we did. It was the right call, um, clearly. And um, I can't quite remember. I, I mean, I'm sure there were other specific plays that we at least considered, mm-hmm. um, but I can't, none of them really wound up being true contenders. So I don't really specifically remember any of them. Um, in the end, it was always sort of midsummer. Certainly by the beginning of the season, we knew it was going to be midsummer. Um, and uh, it just became uh, me sort of, getting over myself, like, oh, it's such an obvious choice. And I had sort of done aspects of Midsummer and Gargoyle, so that felt like I was repeating myself. And um, so I got over caring that I was repeating myself, I guess, is what it comes down to. <laughs> uh, hey, if it works, it works. But, uh, Although I do have to say, based yeah. on that note, I think Kenny, and by extension Andrew Cascino, would have been terrific as Falstaff. Andrew do most anything, so uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue the point. But uh, I think uh, also, you know, there are moments in there that I like. Uh, I had a drama teacher in high school who um, just always wanted to be in the shows. And <laughs> so, kidding, uh, he, he cast someone uh, in a show who was actually working. I mean, he was a high school student. When I was a senior, this guy was a junior, but he was actually working professionally in Hollywood, and he cast him, the teacher cast him in the lead of the show, and the kid was saying all along, look, I'm not going to be around. I mean, I'll be back by the time the show goes up, but I won't be around for any rehearsals until, like, the day before. I can't do this. And the teacher was like, you're a pro. You can do it. You're the one I want you got to be the one the guy's going, I, I don't think so. I don't think I can do it. And he came back and lo and behold was sort of like, uh, yeah, I can't do it. I'm not, I don't, I didn't have time to learn the lines. I'm not going up there and making a fool of myself. I warned you about this. You wouldn't listen to me. And so the guy, the teacher was like, well, then I guess I have no choice. I'm going to have to perform the role. And at the, you know, at the last minute, a friend of mine was, we were like, well, she can do it. And he's like, well, all right, if you can get ready by tomorrow, then you can perform it. Otherwise, that, there's just no choice. I'll have to do it. Knowing that or believing that there was no way she could get ready in a day. But she did. Wow. And you, you could, wow. And he was 
not happy. <laughs> you could tell he was not happy. He had wanted to play that part, and he had cast the other guy because he knew the other guy would drop out, and he'd have to do it. So I ha- there's this moment when, of all people, Sinjin Devereaux, this big, huge guy who plays Falstaff on Broadway, right? Yeah. In Mary yeah. Wives, where we've established this, decides that there's just no choice. I'm going to have to play Puck, which is about the worst casting. <laughs> 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 look on his faces, and Glory speaks up and says, Hobie can play Puck. He played Puck in, you know, something at the, the L. Thompson Lincoln Center or something like that. Yeah. And, and Hobie starts to talk and is like, all right, then you can do it. <laughs> not Still doesn't get to talk. And so that was right after, that was right out of my own high school experience. So the notion of the teacher who is making the grand sacrifice of playing the role himself. I, I, I'm falling on my own sword that I've crafted myself, but I'll do it. <laughs> and in the oh. end, the fatal flaw in his plan was exposed. <laughs> that is, see, this is the type of insight that you can only get on Spec Radio. Yeah. Because because nobody would have known that this was your 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 actual real life experience. That's glorious. It is. I have a question that both of you can answer. Zach and I have in the past on this show talked about our limited stage experience. I was in a high school production of Cabaret. I had a non-speaking, non-singing role. I was, I was a very oh, fine person. No, no, I was a very fine person. I was, I was one of the Nazis in it. But I got to punch out the lead, and he was played by someone who I didn't particularly like, so that was fun, but... <laughs> well, and Zach, I believe you said he played Johnny Fontaine. Uh, Vince Fontaine, Vince yeah, Fontaine, in Greece. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking of Godfather or Johnny Fontaine. That was that was the best role ever because I got to pre-record all of my all of my Act One scenes because they were just you know listening to to me on the radio, so I didn't have to do it live. That was actually what kind of inspired me to, to whenever I heard podcasting was a thing. Uh, after I had done and had that experience, that was my senior year in '06, and then I started uh, podcasting, you know, uh, the fall of '06. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird way of how how I kind of just lit a passion of for for something like this. But yeah, I I did Vince and uh, was the creepy guy at the at the high school dance. Uh, but you know, uh, I had a lot of fun. We had a, I had a blast with it. Um, it was one of my favorite experiences my senior year. So definitely enjoyed it i i also did um i did all the musicals from my sophomore and junior year i did oklahoma uh, i was but they were all bit roles the the events role was the first role that i had was that was actually a a, a speaking part in a named role all right but um but jen and greg have 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 you had much i mean greg you just talk about this but any memorable characters that you played on on stage, either one of you, Jenny, can go first. But Greg, I believe I heard you once say you played Edmund, hence your affinity for that character. My my favorite character that I've ever played is uh, Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors. Nice. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I got the part because I was tall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I loved that. In high school, I was, you know, typical of me. I just wanted to work behind the scenes. I did makeup. I did uh, 
you know, set building and, and stuff like that. Um, and it wasn't until I got out of high school that I started doing community theater and Audrey was the first part I ever got. And I was terrified. Um, but it was, it was absolutely fun. That and, uh, I played Olga Beryosheva, uh, from Pink Panther Strikes Again, nice. where I got to be the sexy Russian spy who got to strangle Clouseau a lot, um, uh, while screaming <laughs> she, she loved him. So, you know, just like me. <laughs> nice. Nice. I would love to see that. And Greg, I mean, you, I, like I said, unless I'm misremembering, you've played Edmund before, hence your affinity for that character. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I did a lot of theater in high school and college. Um, I played uh, Theseus in an ideal uh, in a, uh, the Warrior's Husband. Uh, I played Joe Carden in Children's Hour. Uh, I played. Um, smaller roles all through college. Uh, um, but I, yeah, I played Edmund and I directed stuff um, in high school. I mean, in college, not in high school, in college and produced plays. And, um, you know, I was in Hamlet with uh, Andre Brower, um, who's currently, you know, one of the leads on Brooklyn Nine-Nine fantastic nice. in it i've seen andre since college but he was in it he played hamlet but i had five parts so really who was more important in that <laughs> <laughs> there are no small parts only small actors <laughs> I, I, I was uh, use a sports analogy you were the utility player that's uh in that particular <laughs> nice. so um i uh the thing that, you know, in high school, I was usually, so I went to an all boys uh, preparatory high school and we had a sister school, an all girls school. And, and I, I did no theater at my own school, but over at the sister school, I was the big man on campus because fundamentally I was the only man on campus. Um, <laughs> I see your so scheme I, there, Greg. I, I see it. <laughs> well played. I, I always got the lead roles there and and i always wanted to be a writer that that was true since i was at least in third grade uh second grade probably but uh when i was in high school i thought i might want to be an actor too and then i got to college uh and i realized i'm not that good uh, <laughs> <laughs> i have a certain amount of talent and i have willingness to go for it up to a point anyway um but I'm not actually that good relative, you know, in high school, the competition was such that I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. But I, even by the time I got to college, I could see that um, I just wasn't, I mean, one issue I had um, was kind of a tangent, but one issue I had was that I'm not that good at memorizing lines. That's why animation is ideal for me. Um, you know, I would spend just memorizing the lines was so difficult for me that the time to work on my acting as opposed to working on getting it down, you know, um, I, I was never going to be that guy. And I would see other performers, uh, including Andre Barrow, but not just him, who, you know, learning the lines, that was second nature. That they got done in a day or two. Um, hell, Andre Brower learned literally the entire play of Hamlet by heart. 
Um, but wow. I, that was always a struggle for me. So I was never, um, I was never going to be good enough to be a full-time actor, um, which is all for the best as, as I'm sure, um, my performances as Donald Mankin can prove. So, uh, <laughs> no one could have played Donald Mankin quite like you. <laughs> that's, I concur that's on very that one. True. Thank you, and I'll flip you the 20 bucks later. <laughs> <laughs> Where's uh, the Emmy nod? Come on. <laughs> and here I have to bring up Lucas Carr also, and Commando number three, but <laughs> or was it Commando number two? I forget. It was, it was one Commando. But, um, no... But I I really love this episode. It's one of those episodes that really speaks to me. It hits me in two of my like you. I'm a I'm a Shakespeare fanboy and a Spider Man fanboy, so it hit me on both sides, and that was really 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 fun. But um, and I and I always and, and just talking about Sackling makes me think back to those radio plays we did together. And um, I believe in the last one, Jen fired me before I locked her in the closet, but <laughs> justifiably, yeah. Oh, and. <laughs> And I gotta say this, Jen, thinking back to 2009, you were an awesome Sally Avril. <laughs> and I, I think you just called me snotty, but okay. <laughs> when I say it, it's a compliment. Okay, okay. <clears throat> I think yeah, I think that was the first time I played myself because Greg loves me. <laughs> and also won't let me forget what happened in 2003. <laughs> Ever. Nor should, nor, <laughs> should, nor should he. Nor should he. Yeah, nor should he. Nor should he. But That's probably one of one of my top five favorite stories of, of Spec Radio's history is describing oh. how how you uh, tried to almost ki- inadvertently kidnapped uh, poor Greg. GPS has definitely been Bashansky's best friend. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Ways on my ways on my smartphone. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say either Google Maps or Waze now. Yeah, now it's Kevin Conroy's Batman yelling at me. Yeah. Like Conroy. Yes, yes. So that's the voice on Waze right now. But yeah, and they got him and uh, the voice of Riddler too yeah. from the animated series. That's right. Anyway, also Greg, uh, one last question. Unless Zach has any more. Following this, when you're producing a series, you're the guy in charge. What makes you decide which script you personally want to write? You personally wrote. Uh, you know, I mean. This one obviously was going to be me because it was all Shakespeare and um, there are things I wanted to do with it. But in general, um, I've just done this a lot. So I look for the ones that are interesting to me specifically. Um, Like, oh, this one is something I haven't tried before. You know, um, I usually wind up doing the first episode of a show to set the tone, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, on YJ, I always do the first episode of the season to set the tone. But beyond that, it's usually finding ones that there's something in it that I feel I haven't done before or something in it that makes me go, this one feels personal to me. And obviously on this episode, doing the Shakespeare and um, the whole uh, Walter Hardy thing and, you know, I mean – we had our felicitous felonious feline in there. And, I love that line. <laughs> you know, and just all the interplay, you know, Captain Stacy saying to Jonah, you can't possibly be rooting for Spider-Man to lose here. We're all in danger. And, and Jonah's <laughs> like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. You know? <laughs> <laughs> 
there's jo- just some great uh, Jonah stuff in this episode, and I love writing Jonah. I loved writing for Darren so much. Um, he was so great at Jonah. So the whole, like, uh, his glee at Spider-Man being locked up at all, his... Um, he loved the homunculo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he has a line about they should get their own show. People have misinterpreted the Gargoyles reference. It's not. I was pushing Sony to do a homunculi show. I really thought <laughs> we show about these three robots who escape, these three little homunculi robots who escape, and two of them have pretty sophisticated programming, and the third one just says one non sequitur after another, and it's kind of a nut. Non sequitur, non sequitur. Yeah. I just loved three of them, and I was like, we should do a homunculi show, and I could never convince anyone. And this was like, <laughs> try and do a backdoor pilot for the homunculi. Um, Listen, I, I totally thought it was, in fact, a Gargoyles reference. In fact, in our in our fan panel, I, I kind of pointed that out. I said it wasn't, and I believe Gerard thought I was BSing him because, again, it just seems so much like it would be. But um, also, also, who were the, the monkey? It was Phil. Um, uh, I know Cree was one. Third one. Cree. Oh, Cree was the third one that I can't think of. Okay. So yeah. it was Steve, Phil, and Cree. Well, they were great. They, they were, were hilarious. Well, Tom Adcox did them sometimes. We had a bunch of, we had like five different people, because Dee did one too at one point. Mm-hmm. We had a bunch of different people doing them. Um, but yeah, I, it would have been from among those five, but I think we would have narrowed it down to three, uh, Homunculi and you know, two who kind of knew what was going on and one who really, really didn't. Um, and I see, just thought that would be... Not really knowing what was going on. Yeah. I mean, and there's so much going on. I mean, I have, I've also noticed this is not your only prison script. I believe you also wrote the YJ episode in season one where they go to Bell Rev is the, is the trying to escape from prison, prison, um... Plot one that interests you. I've seen you do it more than once in both unique, different, different ways. Uh, I have to go like now, but because um, it's due. But I don't know that it's the prison thing that interests me. I think in each case there was something in the prison episode that really interested me. And then YJ one, it was the. Um, the Connor McGann relationship and, and in particular the opportunity for them to get a little therapy from uh, um, Professor Strange, Hugo Strange. <laughs> really. I question uh, that guy's credentials. And I'm all, I also really liked High School Junior, so there were other reasons. It just worked out that I wound up doing that prison episode too, but it was for the other stuff in it. Not that I dislike prison episodes. I think they're fun, but in any case, I apologize, but uh, I've got a YJ thing uh, edit session now, and I have to go. All like, right, nap. Greg, thank you for your time. We'll discuss. We'll speak to you again, again soon for Final yeah, Curtain. All right, and before we yeah, before, 
Before we use up, I was also going to bring up before Greg had to depart. This is also a very much a classic Spider-Man plot. You've got Spidey fighting crime so he can't make it to the day to the Mary Jane's play, or in this case it's Liz's play, or dinner. This this is quintessential, and usually it's um, blown up in his face, and as we'll see next time, Liz's patience is totally running out. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. Very mm-hmm. much so. And deserved Vidley show. She was a a saint. But, um, Jen, do you have any other memories of this episode and working on this episode? No, like, I... Like, I, after a while, they all, like, really run together, especially because we'd be up, you know, calling edits to, like, three in the morning sometimes. But, <laughs> um, of course, this is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, because first you got Black Cat, you've got Shakespeare, <laughs> you've got, um... I get some some uh, uh, Captain Stacy, which uh, is probably the first good guy I've ever fallen in love with in animation. Um, so, like, it, it's just a fun episode, and and of course, you know, the voice actors a hundred percent bring it. Um, they do. I, I cannot help but wonder if when they began working on the show, if they ever dreamed they would be doing this much Shakespeare verbatim. <laughs> Joshua Labar. And his Flash Thompson, this guy is just like inherently funny, and and doing casting him as Nick Bottom uh, for the play was just perfect and hysterical, and I loved every second that he was on stage <laughs> in this episode. Yeah, in our fan panel, which will actually be which we recorded first, will be airing after this. The way Shashan looks at him in that mask, I just kept thinking, I know that look. He's getting laid tonight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we we had, we had to laugh about that part because, like, you know, no, I look it, it, in the fan panel. I I think I didn't give it as high of a grade as it normally would have, um, just because it wasn't I wasn't necessarily feeling it when I rewatched it. But you know, now hearing some of the little details, this, this is why I hate sometimes that we have to do the fan panels back to back because hearing the interviews now makes me a want to go rewatch it and b makes me kind of appreciate some of the the references that are thrown in there. Yeah. Um, and so definitely, I, I think when I go back and rewatch it, because uh, my girlfriend is wants to do get more into Spider-Man, and I told her that we just needed to sit down and do some binge-watching of, of the uh, of the series. And I want to try to do that before we, we do the final interview with with Greg, but, and obviously for our final episodes. But... Yeah, no, I... You said I, she's a Shakespeare I, fan also? She does like Shakespeare, so I think she's going to like... It'll be interesting to see from her eyes completely... You know, I, I watched it, obviously, several times, um, you know, when it came out, and then... Because I always recorded it. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how she how she views this episode. But, yeah, you know, like I say, it's going to be... It, it, it is really well done... Uh, and that's one. I think that was one of the things I said is that it just wasn't my cup of tea, but it was really, really well executed. And I thought, uh, and and hearing some of the stories now, I, I hate that I missed the first half of this episode. But, <laughs> <laughs> it I was fun because like, uh, I feel like that uh, we, um, I, I'm, I definitely missed out. So you definitely need to be listening to this if you're not already subscribed. But uh, yeah, I can talk a little bit about this, the, the stuff too, Greg, when, when we get to it. But at the end, but yeah, uh, some, some right. positive. Some positive things happen today. On the day we're recording this, we're finally on Spotify. Yes. Uh, we are oh, on Spotify. Cool. Uh, we are, I've resubmitted, 
the show back on uh, Apple Podcasts, and all of our episode covers are actually working, which is really nice. So um, when you when you actually play it on on I, on Apple Podcasts, you'll see the uh, actual um, episode cards. Before it was just this the standard show card. So yeah, uh, some exciting things. Um, by the time, hopefully, knock on wood, this episode is out. All of the back episodes will be back on. We uh, had a big massive malware attack. I don't know if Jennifer knows. And since we've last recorded a uh, show like this, and yeah. <laughs> so it's been a very oh, that's awful. Yeah, it brought it, down the entire site, all the podcasts, everything. Yeah, it was like it was it was the worst. And so now, um, the only good thing about everything is that now the new episodes, when they come out, will uh, will all be nice and and look nice and be nice and formatted properly and. We're not having to cobble it together, and we're actually uh, – it feels like a renewal, um, but all of – like I say, all the episodes are, are will be back up hopefully uh, very soon. Well, it, it, by the time this is out, all the all the back episodes will be out, so definitely uh, – but yeah, no, it just – it required a lot of extra unnecessary work for me, but that's okay. <laughs> and we ran, and we ran a uh, pledge drive where, where our listeners and people got to contribute to help pay the bill to bring it back on because that got pretty steep. And I would also like to publicly thank Ron Friends, artist on Spider-Girl, and he did Amazing Spider-Man as well back in the 80s, I think, for for volunteering two original art pieces to the two highest donations. Yeah, Very that cool. was that was um, overwhelmingly awesome um and we, humbling <laughs> I, I i still bow at the at, at the generosity of ron and uh the generosity of everybody that donated um i just can't thank you guys enough because basically you helped us uh not only um get back up online but also have better security and heighten some heightened features and some more features that'll that I didn't think were possible before. So really excited about some some stuff. So be sure to be able to check us out on our on our various social medias at Spidey Radio is the Twitter. Um, you can donate uh, PayPal.me slash Spidey Network if you if you choose to do so. Um, but all of our uh, our Instagram and Facebook is Instagram.com is at Spidey Network and at on both of those platforms now. Try to keep keep everything uh, as uniform as possible, except Twitter wants to be contrary. So <laughs> that's why it's not at Spidey Network on Twitter. But yeah, uh, at Spidey Radio on Twitter. Everything else is at uh, Spidey Network. So all right. And before we go, Jen, where can our listeners find you, if, especially if they want to commission some beautiful artwork? You can always locate me at heyassbutt.com. Heyassbutt.com. Hey, I love that <laughs> URL. Clearly, I've been doing a lot of supernatural work. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, she, do, but... She, she does some kick-ass Scarwell's artwork. I should know. I've got one permanently etched into my skin. And I bet she could draw a kick-ass Spidey, too, if she if someone commissioned her. Oh, I would love to draw Spidey. <laughs> I would well, love Jen, I, I am and so happy. Black... Oh, commission me to do something. <laughs> yes, yes, Black Cat. <laughs> Jen, I'm so happy you're back on. It was always a pleasure talking to you in the past, and and uh, I'm just glad we got you before we before the show wrapped uh, to come oh, back and talk. You're with so us. close. You got one episode left. Good job, you guys. Listen, uh, ne- Greg and I have routinely joked which one was going to end for CS or w- which one was going to get there for CSC or uh, or Spec Radio, and he always thought, oh, CS like 
spec radio, but it, it, we barely made managed to do it. But uh, yeah, I, this it, it is really weird because we're still doing other shows like Spider Experience and um, Make Mine Mayday and uh, definitely keeping busy and it's great. Like you're keeping keeping it out there and keeping people entertained and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I do want to reference one other show, Rollup and Rep, well, Web Snappers. They've been doing a look back on the spectacular yes. Spider-Man cartoon and they gave us a great shout out on Twitter. I wanted to give them a shout out back here on the show because they were they were so kind to us. But yeah, uh, the goal now is to try to beat them <laughs> before they get to the end. <laughs> so, hopefully the, we'll we'll get some updates. They'll be out fast and furious. Be sure to uh, check out our socials, and we'll uh, definitely keep you guys surprised. And keep listening. Like it was just said, we're down to the wire. We're almost And there. we do need your feedback. Uh, SpectacularRadio at gmail.com, 818-925-6631 is the, the voicemail line that I actually recently updated uh, to reflect our, our ever-growing network of shows. So. so if you love us, if you love the show, please leave us a voicemail and send us an email also at spectacularradio at gmail.com. But voicemail is more fun. Hell, you can do that even if you hate us. We want to hear from you. <laughs> Unleash the hate. You know, we'll, we'll, sometimes sometimes those, those, so those are the funnest reviews because you're like, man... It's just it's just podcasting. And in the meantime, I appreciate you guys having me back on. I I had I, a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming back on one last time, Jen. It is so very much appreciated. And I just want to say to all our listeners, I appreciate you too. Stick around for our pa- fan panel on opening night, and then join us next time for our final interview segment with Greg Wiseman, where Vic Cook will be joining us to help us close out Ooh. the series. Awesome. Yeah. And some surprises, hopefully, more uh, along the way. Some surprise people on, especially on that last fan panel too. So we'll be see. sure to very be sure to check that out. That's some teases. We'll see. All right. Thank you, everyone, and stay spectacular. Shall we their fond pageant see? Lord, what, what fools, fools these mortals, mortals be! be.